Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI, Oxford's Research Institute for the Study of America and its place in the world. My name's Adam Smith. The old saying that history is written by the victors has never been less true than in the case of the American Civil War. Up until a few months ago, a visitor strolling past the massive equestrian statues on Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia, could be forgiven for assuming that they commemorated victorious generals. In fact, they commemorated losers. Jefferson Davis, Stonewall Jackson, and above all, Robert E. Lee. Set in a wide boulevard in the city's most fashionable district, these monuments were a self-conscious shrine to the lost cause. The statue of Lee, sat astride his horse, Traveller, was over 60 feet tall, the largest pro-Confederate monument in the nation. It was erected in 1890, 20 years after Lee's death and 25 years after his surrender of the ragged remains of his Confederate army at Appomattox Courthouse. The surrender which sealed the fate of the South's audacious bid to create an independent slaveholding republic. The American Civil War did not end ambiguously. It ended in complete military defeat for the South. And yet for a century and a half it is the losers, the men who took up arms against the United States to defend the cause of human enslavement, who were honoured as American heroes. Even US Army bases were named after rebel leaders. Lee, in particular, was constructed in mainstream American culture as a man of gentleness and nobility, whose love for his home state of Virginia impelled him to take up arms in her defence. But in the last few years, all that has changed. Suddenly, the passions of the 1860s have returned. While a president has defended the Confederate battle flag and the good people who wave it, statues have tumbled, icons have fallen. After the murder of George Floyd in 2020, protesters covered Lee's statue in Richmond in graffiti. Images of black leaders were projected onto it. And on September the 8th, this year, 2021, Lee finally fell. It was monumentous. It was, it was a glorious day. Lawrence West, a founder of Black Lives Matter, was there that day. And all of a sudden you see the very bottom of the horse's feet the base, very slight separation. And little bit by little bit, it's coming up, little bit by little bit. And it's just like the most overwhelming thing. Uh, I mean, if you've ever stood outside for over a year, I'm telling you, you would be happy as I don't know what to, to see what it is that you, that you were fighting for accomplished, right? Also cheering Lee's fall was a more unlikely figure. Retired Brigadier General Ty Sedgley, born in Virginia in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement and now an Emeritus Professor of History at West Point and the author of Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. My first thought was, woohoo! Uh, I was so excited to see it come down. The second thought was, I can't believe it's coming down. The third thing I thought was it had already been transformed by the black community and others in Richmond to be something uh, sacred in, in a completely different way, whether it was projecting the U.S. colored troops or George Floyd or Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass. So it was a sacred space for white supremacy, and now it had been 
taken 180 degrees from there. And it was amazing to see how rapidly that change had occurred and that the city of Richmond had indeed embraced that. What would your 18-year-old self have thought if, if you could even have imagined such a possibility as the Robert E. Lee statue coming down? I would never have imagined it. And I would have been horrified because, you know, it, it, for me, growing up as a as a boy in Virginia, Lee was the was the God. I mean, on a scale of one to 10, I would have put Lee as a child at 11. And uh, despite my uh, Episcopalian sort of Anglican background growing up as a as a boy, I was an acolyte all the way through high school, um, I would have put Jesus sort of in the four, five, six range. So it wasn't as though I thought he was great. I thought he was a deity. So I would have been absolutely appalled and it would never have happened. There's a beautiful passage in your book about you taking your wife to what was then, I think just now is no longer called the Lee Chapel at Washington and Lee University. Uh, which you had attended. I think you were returning there many years later, and you took her to this sacred space, a very literally a, a sacred space. Can you just convey uh, what your experience of it was, what it was like to walk into, and how your wife reacted when you took her there for the first time? If you walk in this Lee Chapel at Washington and Lee University, and Lee was the president of the college after he after the end of the Civil War, from 1865 to his death in 1870, and when you walk into that chapel, um, uh, there's no Christian iconography at all. Instead, there is a portraits of Lee and George Washington. And Lee is sort of a beatified uh, a man with the light halo of light on him. Sort of, the, you can almost hear the hallelujah chorus singing. And then in the apse of the chapel, there was an altar. But on the altar, which of course is the Holy of Holies, where the Eucharist is done, it's Robert E. Lee lying asleep on the battlefield in the whitest of marble, white to represent the white people of the South, what he fought for. He's got his hand on the sword, ready to rise up to protect his social system of slavery. Surrounding him are Confederate flags, battle flags. And that was where I took my commission. So when I became an army officer, I raised my right hand, took the army officer's oath, which I didn't realize at the time is an anti-Confederate oath. I didn't know that at the time. I'm going in there to show my wife where we genuflected at to St. Bob, as we called him, Robert E. Lee. And my wife, who was raised Catholic, looks at this and says, oh my God, Lee is the altar. Get me out of here. So she clearly understood that this was a site of sacrilege in a way. I mean, if you believe in the Ten Commandments, which is, you shall have no God before me, no idols. This was an idol that was Robert E. Lee, which is exactly the way I grew up. The Lee statue that you're talking about that's there in this uh, chapel, in, in Lee Chapel, is, is a little bit like uh, the statuary in English cathedrals of crusader soldiers or, or, or dead kings or noblemen. So he's, he's lying on his back as if it was a sarcophagus. I think he's actually buried beneath in the crypt, isn't he? And, and what you're saying, Ty, is that up until that moment, when you were there with your wife, years after you had taken that oath in that spot, up until that moment, the incongruity of it had never struck you. And it, no, it never struck me because uh, culture is stronger than facts. And my culture worshipped uh, Lee was the Christ figure. And that statue showed him not dead, as many of you would see in Europe, uh, of this sarcophagus 
for figure, but he was on the battlefield resting, ready to rise up to fight for the white people of the South. My wife is incapable of lying, and I grew up lying. My entire culture was based on a lie, a lie of white supremacy, and she just couldn't get where this lie came from. And you know, and I took her down below where his office, undisturbed. So, you know, if you think of, if you go to cathedrals in Europe, you know, there's these reliquaries where the relics of the saints are there. And you would see people talking, whispering to the bones of their saint. Well, here was his office, undisturbed since 1870. His horse was buried outside. And it was his horse buried outside. They would put, Traveler was the name of his horse, next to his master, and they would put pennies down. Pennies in America have Abraham Lincoln, our greatest president, on the on the top, but they would always put it face down. Why? So that Lincoln's face could not see Lee, and so that Lincoln would have to kiss Traveler's ass, the horse's <laughs> ass. So, I mean, it, it just, every, you know, and there's, there's, there, they would leave horses and apples on this ghostly journey to take Lee to Valhalla. I mean, again, you you can't make this stuff up. The great white horse traveler is is bound in with, with the Lee myth. The other thing that occurs to me listening to you, which would certainly, I'm sure, annoy uh, white Southerners would have done over the generations. The other parallel that occurs to me is Lenin's tomb in Moscow, uh, where, where his, his body, of course, is, is preserved and has been for, for, for decades a, a place of, of reverence. Sacred. And I think you're exactly right, Adam, that this is sacred space for the white ruling class, for white Southerners, this was, as they called it, in fact, the license plates in that area uh, used to have on it the Shrine of the South for Lexington, Virginia was called the Shrine of the South. And that's what that was. This was the Shrine of the South, the um, St. Peter's Basilica or the Westminster Abbey of the Confederacy. So let's dig a little bit into how that all came to be then. I mean, let's let's just go back into the history a little bit here. Lee's message to the Army of Northern Virginia at Appomattox, in which he thanked them for their four years of arduous service and said that uh, in the end, of course, the Confederate Army had been overwhelmed by superior numbers and resources. The message there, as his men were sent home on parole, very generous terms by historical standards, given the way that wars normally end by Union General Grant. But Lee's message then to the, his Confederate Army of Northern Virginia was that this was a noble cause which they should feel no dishonour um, for having lost. Is that a clue to where the Robert E. Lee myth and the myth of the lost cause more generally comes from? That the South needed to feel, the white South needed to feel psychologically that although they had manifestly lost this war on the battlefield in the most clear-cut way, or so it seemed on that day in April 1865, that in some deeper sense there was no shame in that outcome and that in a deeper sense they had really won. I think you, you nailed it. I mean, if you think that the white South went to war to protect and expand the institution of slavery, and they wanted to send it to California, to the Caribbean, to Mexico, to Latin America, to, to South America, how could they come to grips with not only losing, losing disastrously, getting absolutely the opposite of what they wanted? So they begin this called the, the myth of the lost cause, which starts before the smoke has cleared on the battlefield with general orders number nine that Lee signs. Uh, ascribing this to, and, and there's there's all kinds of things he's putting in there. They didn't fight fair. There's the immigrant army because there's so many immigrants that are coming. Well, there's a reason why immigrants aren't going to the South who'd want to compete against slave labor. And there's black soldiers fighting, 200,000 nearly. Well, that's also because that's not really fair. But you're exactly right. It starts 
on the battlefield of making Lee the Christ figure of never doing wrong. But remember, he didn't just lose a little bit. He was utterly destroyed. And how will the South come to grips with this is the beginnings of the lost cause myth. So how was it that uh, General Lee, not not all Southern uh not all Confederate generals, of course, were, were given this uh, status. I mean, uh, notoriously, General Longstreet, Lee's uh, second-in-command at the Battle of Gettysburg, who uh, fell foul of majority white Southern opinion during Reconstruction for at least, in a way, supporting the uh, Reconstruction government in Louisiana. But Longstreet was later blamed, wasn't he, by white Southerners for having lost the Battle of Gettysburg uh, and having lost the Battle of Gettysburg, the high tide of the Confederacy thereafter receded with Gettysburg's loss, the war was lost. So other people got it in the neck, other white Southerners, Confederate leaders got it in the neck, but Lee rose above all this in this saint-like way that you're describing. What was it about Lee, the man or the imagined man or the projection of his character that gave him that status in the post-war South? Well, I think there are a couple things. The first is that there really weren't many successful people in the white South, the Confederate States, that you would that you could say that you could give this sort of marble man figure to. He was very successful in 1862, 1863 against uh, incredible odds. He was seen as the indispensable man in the South, in the white South. He was the most successful general in the South, and he was successful for several years. So Southerners do see him as the indispensable man. But the other reason is for every religion, you need a figure. And by the time Lee dies, then he is starting to be elevated because he's the only successful man on on that side. And he does uh, represent someone who uh, fought for 30 years in U.S. Army Blue and chose then to come to the Confederacy when most others senior like him did not. So he is a a person who is naturally suited for this role because there isn't anybody else. else. Jefferson Davis was terrible. So that there's nobody else that could have taken this role. And he was indeed seen as the most important man in the Confederacy. What character traits did he embody? Why was he an inspiring figure as a, as a man to you? Uh, for me, growing up as a white boy in the South, I wanted to be a gentleman. And a gentleman uh, meant everything to me. And what it meant was it meant good manners. It meant uh, uh, status. Uh, it meant power. It meant education. It meant all the things that as a teacher's child, I, I was going to have to work to get. But no one had more status in growing up to me than this figure. And my books, like my first chapter book, uh, Meet Robert E. Lee, I mean, he was like on a god, a, mil- a god on loan from Mount Olympus, um, traveling, a traveler, his horse is there, he's riding it. The horse is so intelligent, doesn't even need to have his hands on the reins, you know? So, every, and, and the textbooks I had created by the state of Virginia to show that segregation was good, to show that slavery wasn't that bad. Well, here's the great Robert E. Lee. It's always the great Robert E. Lee. So it, in all ways, he was the white South uh, figure to, uh, to, to, to try to become that much of a gentleman. When you were growing up and reading these books and admiring Lee and putting him 11 out of 10, as against Jesus Christ at 6 out of 10, or whatever he said earlier. This was in the 
aftermath of the peak of the civil rights movement. Um, there was racial turmoil in the United States. There were riots in cities. There was the assassination of Martin Luther King, all of these things that um, people know about. Did you connect those two things at all in your mind or were they just somehow you must have been aware even as a white boy growing up in Virginia but being a smart kid and go to school and uh, ambitions to join the army and go to college I mean you obviously must have been aware of the racial issues that the United States was confronting you must have had a view on it you must have been drawn into it in some way or other did it in any way did it connect with your understanding of Lee no growing up in Alexandria Virginia this is northern Virginia uh, I was at the integration era. So I was uh, a child of integration. And in the sixth grade, I was bused across town. So uh, busing in America, we started to try to achieve racial uh, equality. And uh, in first through fifth grade, I went to uh, Douglas MacArthur Elementary, named after a great uh, American general. And then in the sixth grade, I was bused across town to the black section of town, to the, the segregated all-black school. And I was happy to go there. Why? Because that segregated all-black school was named Robert E. Lee Elementary School, named in 1961 as a part of massive resistance that Virginia was doing to integration. So I remember integration. I remember going to school with black kids, but I don't ever remember putting two and two together that the Confederacy was about the about enslaving black people forever and that that was their purpose because no one talked about that. In fact, I remember reading the book Roots uh, and seeing the television series all about slavery, but it didn't get to my heart. I could still separate and say Robert E. Lee good, slavery bad, but not put them together. I mean, one maneuver, I mean, that's the pejorative way of putting it, one one maneuver that was pulled by those who, you know, and still obviously to this day, who want to venerate Robert E. Lee is to argue that although he fought for his home state of Virginia and therefore for the Confederacy after secession, he himself was secretly anti-slavery. Baloney. For two years, more than two years, from 18, late 1857 to early 1861, or 1860, he ran three plantations uh, with 200 enslaved workers, or as I like to call them, enslaved labor farms. The language we use is it's crucial. Plantations makes you think of Terra and Gone with the Wind, of the wind whispering through the Spanish moss and and Tara saying fiddle-dee-dee as she waits on iced tea. No, these plantations were the sites of mass atrocity. And when Robert E. Lee whipped enslaved people, men and women, saying to lay it on well, pouring salt water on their wounds afterwards, his father-in-law kept enslaved families together, recognized marriages. He tore apart every family through the hiring system but one. So this was somebody who the enslaved people at Arlington, which was the major slave farm there, saw as a cruel slave owner. He benefited from it more than anybody else uh, throughout his entire life. So this is somebody who believed in slavery, fought for slavery. And listen, when you leave the United States of America to fight for a slave power whose only difference with the rest of the United States is slavery, guess what? You believe in slavery. This isn't a hard concept to do. So no, Lee believed in slavery, profited from slavery, and fought this as a social system, which is what he says often, uh, because he thinks it's the best means. And that's before the war, during the war, and after the war. You're now arguing, and other people have argued, that the way in which Robert E. Lee has been seen in American culture and in American academia is not just wrong, it's the reverse of the reality in some crucial respects. It's just the complete opposite. Um, How then do you explain why it has taken so long? You know, decades beyond the civil rights movement, 150 years beyond Appomattox, for people like yourself 
to be saying these things as stridently as you are? Well, I'm not the first. Frederick Douglass said it. The great uh, abolitionist said it in the when he died. Like, please, these nauseating flatteries about Lee when he died. W.B. Du Bois said the same thing in Black Reconstruction. He said the same thing about Confederate monuments. The black tradition has been saying this for a, for a century and a half. Uh, among white scholars, it has been more recent. But I do think it has required a, a level of... Uh, uh, of, of honesty among historians that we just didn't have before. And I tell you, it's also been, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think I've been able to do this so stridently is because I come at this as a white Southerner, uh, as a historian and as an army officer. So I'm a little bit of cognitive dissonance because people think of, of army officers as being somehow inherently conservative. But if you follow the evidence, there's no way that you can say a person who fought for a slave republic is against slavery. And by the way, I should also say that there were eight U.S. Army colonels from Virginia in 1861, all West Point graduates. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, seven of those remained loyal to the United States. Uh, and one and only one fought for the Confederacy. And why did he do that? It's, it's because no one benefited more from slavery. No one believed more in slavery uh, than, than did Robert E. Lee. So I'm ringing a bell on, that there are three reasons why Lee chose treason, and they are like good real estate. You know, it's, it's the same three reasons. It's slavery, slavery, slavery. Uh, I mean, the, the, the standard answer, of course, is not slavery, slavery, and slavery. The old answer is because he was a Virginian, first and a foremost. A Virginian, yes, and, so. And, Virginian. and he couldn't, uh, you know, he was supposedly, well, he was offered a, um, a command of the Union Army. He was obviously a commissioned officer in the United States Army, as you say, at the time when the war broke out. As part of his um, military duties in the United States Army, only a couple of years before, in 1859, he had been involved in suppressing the attempt to generate an insurrection among enslaved people led by the abolitionist John Brown at Harper's Ferry in the state of Virginia. Robert E. Lee, then I think a colonel, a colonel at that point, um, was the U.S. Army officer um, at the scene. So his, his, his military duties up until then had involved protecting slavery. But Abraham Lincoln, in order to conduct this massive police operation, in effect, to suppress the rebellion in April 1861 offered Robert E. Lee command of the Union Army, and Lee famously, apparently after thinking about it for a while, refused uh, because he couldn't countenance the idea of leading an army of invasion into his home state. Is that? I mean, you, you're going to you're going to say that is that baloney uh, as well, Ty? I mean, is that is that? Can you can you can you countenance the idea that there's any uh, truth to that? Kind of emotionally, psychologically, in Lee. Well, there's a new uh, biography out by Alan Gelzo who says that he did it to protect his uh, real estate. The one thing to remember about that is Arlington, which I was been at a couple times. And by the way, Arlington, this is where Arlington National Cemetery, really sacred space for Americans, where 400,000 uh, former soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine are buried. His that was his, his family's his wife's property, and above it is the house, the Arlington House that his father-in-law created, uh, and it looks over the Capitol. If you control that that ground, you have to evacuate the Capitol, Washington. So um, there's no way that they would be. In fact, he tells his wife less than a week after he leaves that you're going to have to leave there because the, the U.S. Army is going to occupy it. So the idea that he is just doing this for Virginia, I don't find that it convinces me at all. At the beginning of this uh, conversation, you 
said, um, and you're sure we were talking about the the taking down of the Lee statue in Richmond, and you said this has all happened so fast. I mean, you know, you you couldn't have imagined the Lee statue coming down when you're an 18 year old. I'm not sure we could have imagined the Lee statue in Virginia coming down had it not been well. First, what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, in 2017, so four years ago now. Um, which also uh, were, was a violent episode centred on the defence by white supremacists of a Lee statue. Um, do, do you think that's right? I mean, you couldn't have had the Lee statue coming down in Richmond if you hadn't previously had that violence. And people remember President Trump saying there were the good people on both sides. That was the, the predicate for what happened in Richmond. I think there was one more predicate, and that was the massacre in Charleston of uh, nine black churchgoers by a young white supremacist who showed the Confederate flag. And it it kind of showed that this Confederate flag has meant, always meant, will always mean racism, will always mean white supremacy. And what we see is this crack in the idea of the lost cause. And I think that's the thing that has finally been brought out, this, this myth of the lost cause. And the myth, you know, as we said, is the is a three or four things that the war wasn't fought over slavery, enslaved people, that, and it's not true, of course, the war was totally fought over slavery, and that enslaved people were happy and hardworking, and that's just uh, slavery features rape, torture, the lash, breaking families apart for profit, um, and that Ulysses S. Grant was a butcher and a and a, a drunk, and that. Um, the Reconstruction, which comes after the war, was evil because black people were ready for the vote. Also not true. And then at the top of that myth is Lee. But the reason that this that this is starting to crack open is what this lost cause was the ideology of a racial police state, a racial apartheid. That was what I grew up in the South, of, of this white supremacist society. And what, what these statues coming down mean is that you're seeing what this white supremacist, this apartheid system that I was born into, that I grew up with, is. And that's why these these statues are coming down is so important. It is really, really important that they're coming down because it represents an understanding of our history that is more accurate, more inclusive, and that I think can lead to some hope about the future. I certainly, as you can tell from listening to me, Ty, I'm not myself American. Um, when I first uh, visited the United States as a, I guess, a late teenager uh, in the 1990s, and I traveled through the South, I remember being astonished and slightly scared, actually, by seeing Confederate flags, by seeing Confederate bumper stickers, by seeing the monuments in town squares to Confederate soldiers. I mean, I was obviously a kind of budding historian then, and so I also find it kind of fascinating but one of the things i found fascinating was how unnoticeable it seemed to be i was very struck also when i first visited the gettysburg gettysburg battlefield by all the confederate monuments there i was just very struck in comparative historical terms and i read plenty about the spanish civil war for for example other civil wars where which ended of course in in very different ways it just struck me as a fascinating historical phenomenon that 100 and, at that stage, 140 years later, there, were, there was still such open um, celebration of a defeated cause. But what interested me at the time was how uncontroversial it was. So things have things have changed very quickly in the in the 20 years since since that happened. I mean, I wonder whether part of it though is that um, at least when I first visited the United States, the 1990s was a different era, wasn't it? In 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 many ways, it just seems in retrospect, although we can see the roots of 
the contemporary American polarization, we can easily see them, trace them back into the 1990s and earlier. At the time, it didn't really feel like that. It felt like a much more consensual kind of politics. There weren't the deep divides along race or partisan lines. So the flip side of the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement and the um, dramatic scenes that we're seeing of the taking down of the Confederate statues in the last uh, three to four years has been a rise of much more virulent and open um, embracing of the Confederate flag, including by the previous president of the United States. So, you know, we're now at a point where on the one hand, you have this extraordinary moment when a kind of, as you said, a sort of Frederick Douglass's, or perhaps more, you know, perhaps we could say Abraham Lincoln's understanding of the American Civil War is finally being implemented. And the United States as a whole, at least the majority sentiment as determined by who's taking down the statues, is insisting that this was, should be regarded as a bloody insurrection in support of the idea that there should be property in man and all that goes with it. But on the other side, you also have in Donald Trump, the first president since Coolidge, maybe, since uh, since the early 20th century, to openly embrace the Confederate uh, flag, to defend those who fly it, to argue very strongly, as of course do his supporters um, in the media and social media, that it has nothing to do with racism, that the assertions, the claims that you've made about the connection between the Confederate flag and white supremacy are just plain wrong. I mean, how do you account for the kind of the backlash is the taking down of the statues the backlash, or is, the, is are the, the Trumpite embrace of Confederate iconography, is that the backlash? Yeah, I, I think that there is certainly the backlash. And I think every time in American history that there is a movement toward equality or integration, there is a backlash that follows it. So if you would think of the uh, our Constitution's 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which is ending slavery, uh, equal protection under the law, and freedom a vote the vote for all men then that and reconstruction that happens there is a a, a reaction to that a redeemers come in in the u.s in the south, south they redo the constitutions and they exclude black people then you have the civil rights movement uh which is a you know a huge movement toward equal rights and you have the the george wallace uh and other american politicians using that nixon uses it reagan uses it they all use it as a backlash for to, to get white votes and the same is happening now so every time there's a movement toward equality you see uh, uh i've seen confederate memorialization come back i've seen the use of the flag it is a sign of white supremacy it's a sign of white people unwilling to do this the thing is that we will always have this backlash as long as there's a politics of race in america and i don't see that going away anytime soon i mean the person that donald trump most reminds me of is george wallace uh who was packed in madison square garden in the early 1970s waving and everyone waving confederate flags here i am i'm in upstate new york in an area that was a stronghold of abolitionists before the Civil War, and a half mile from my house is someone flying a Confederate flag. And yet I can say, whenever somebody's flying a Confederate flag, I say, thank you for telling me you're a racist, because it has always meant the same thing. It has always meant white supremacy. It has always meant racism to black people or to, or to any historian or anybody. It means the same thing. We're recording this interview the day after the Democratic candidate for governor in Virginia has been defeated by a republican whose whose uh whose campaign galvanized voters concerned about 
well, I suppose about the apparent rewriting of the state's history in relation to race and the Civil War. So far as I know, the removal of the Lee statue wasn't directly at stake in the election campaign, but it's plausible to assume that there's some kind of backlash visible here, isn't there? Well, it, uh, history is dangerous. That's one of the themes of my book. History is dangerous because it, it goes after our myths and our identities. And when somebody uh, goes after those myths or identities, the reaction can be ferocious. And so, yes, the idea that, that, that people are thinking that and worried about what their children are being educated, this goes back for years. This goes back for a century when the United Daughters of the Confederacy were burning books to ensure that uh, history was told the correct, so-called correct way that, did, that, that does not mention slavery, does not mention uh, that the war was fought over slavery. So this is something that, that, that has gotten people's uh, uh, votes for years. I will say, though, and you may see this over my head, I, I've got the American flag here. I was in the U.S. Army for 36 years. I will say that I am a patriot of the First Order, having proved that. And the idea that, that somehow you can't criticize uh, the history of your country because you want it to be better is just is just is is terrible and in fact the, the, what makes us a better country a more empathetic country a more patriotic people is to acknowledge where we have gone wrong and try to make that better final question ty you emphasize in your book as you have in this conversation two aspects of robert e lee which turned him from being your childhood hero to being the more if not quite a villain then certainly no longer a heroic figure you call him um, a supporter of slavery, which you talked about extensively, and you call him a traitor, which he kind of, I mean, to me, that's just, I mean, he self-evidently was. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's it's, it's kind of incredible that one would have to make that case. But I suppose, and I'm asking this question as a non-American myself, I suppose my reaction to this traitor bit is kind of, well, sort of so what, right? I mean, George Washington was a traitor, wasn't he? I mean, he'd been a British Army officer, but he led a, an insurrection. It was a successful insurrection, uh, the American Revolution. Um, Robert E. Lee's misfortune, um, if you want to think about it like that, was that he was a traitor who failed uh, to succeed in breaking up the country. But I'm just interested in the kind of the, the moral weight that you put on this. I mean, you are obviously, as a U.S. Army officer, heavily invested in the continuity of the United States and the integrity of the United States. And you, I'm guessing, but I, you know, you can speak for yourself, um, believe that the United States has moral worth as a nation. Could you have also written your book with just as much power, emphasizing Lee's support for slavery and downplaying the significance of his treason. I don't think I could have. At least I couldn't have. The book that I wrote is both history and memoir. And and I did that because I've tried giving those arguments without using my own personal case. I never succeeded. People never believed me when I was doing that. But if I say my own background, I'm more likely to be able to convince them. So the traitor part of it is actually the most important thing to me. Now that why he committed treason is, I mean, it's 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 two it's two sides of the same coin. But he didn't have to do that. He served thirty years in the United States Army, and by the way, all they had to do was not leave the United States, and slavery would have gone on for decades longer. They they had this idea of creating a slave society that would expand all over the globe, really. And so it's a deeply evil system that they are fighting for. But to to your job as a army officer. You don't practice democracy, you enforce democracy. So it doesn't really matter if you agree or disagree with your country. You go to war when it tells you to. 
And okay, you resign, but that does not mean you take up arms against the country that educated you, that you served so faithfully for over 30 years. So yeah, the treason argument, and, and by the way, that's what the army officers were saying in the 1860s and the 1870s. That's what they were saying. They called him a traitor. That's the reason why in the 19th century at West Point, which is really where I had my epiphany, they banished Lee and the Confederates from memory. No Confederates in the cemetery, none in our memorial hall. Um, no statues to Confederates because they were seen as traitors. And the oath that I took, as I said earlier, the oath I took is there to ferret out traitors from from our ranks. So I do take the idea of treason seriously, and I because I, th- I think it is a, it is an issue for an American soldier. It's an Amer- an issue for the American citizen that if you believe in your country, then you don't try to destroy it. And and he tried to destroy the country for the worst possible reason to create a slave republic. And to me. That is just an egregious sin of the first order and is not worthy of my honor. And I will say one more thing about this, these monuments. Remember, monuments are about who we commemorate. It's about our values. When we put a monument up, it says this is our values. And if that value changes, if we no longer believe that this commemorates someone who, who represents our values, then we should totally change it. In the same way that we took down George III's statue in Manhattan in uh, during the American Revolution, because that is the monarchy is no longer what we what we want. So Lee does not represent the values that the United States of America has today. And therefore, now listen, I'm not going to say communities take that down. That's their choice to do. But they should certainly understand why they went up. And they went up, by the way, later, the 1890s to 1920, to support white supremacy. Uh, read those things. So no, Lee is not someone that I'm going to honor. And I'm going to, uh, with every breath I take, try to put the facts forward so that more people understand that. Trouble is, of course, you're making this very passionate uh, and to me anyway, convincing argument, but some huge proportion of your fellow countrymen strongly disagree with you. We've just talked about the fact that the Republicans have retaken control of Virginia, if not directly directly campaigning on this issue, then you can be sure certainly capitalizing on the discontent or alienation or discomfort of voters who don't like to see things like this leaf statue coming down. As, as we're talking right now in uh, November 2021, it seems to me probably if you were putting money on who's going to be the next president of the United States, it'll probably be Donald Trump. So can this new House divided uh, stand? Well, I do believe in the United States of America, we have been through something worse, uh, which is which is a civil war. And we, we managed to survive that. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. said that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. I wish I believed that. I, I don't, uh, because I've seen what happened in Europe in World War One and World War Two. Terrible things can happen. Now, we are one of the few countries that has never had a military coup. I'm very proud of that. Uh, but it doesn't mean it can't happen in the future. The, the, the fu- We know as historians, you can't predict the future. And I'm not going to predict it now. I do tell you that there are people, and I'm one of them, that will continue with every breath I have to tell a more accurate story of America and hope that my fellow uh, citizens uh, will continue to fight for equality as well. Ty Sedgley whose book Robert E. Lee and Me is a vivid account of the veneration of the Confederate general in Southern white culture. We're living through a tipping point in the place of the Civil War in the American public imagination. Until now, the monumental landscape has remained largely unchanged since the height of the neo-Confederate revival in the early 20th century. Once only reenactors and military history buffs cared about the Civil War, now it's being refought in front of us. Black lives matter. I said black lives matter. 
The day after the Lee statue came down, someone flew a plane over Monument Avenue bearing the banner, God bless Robert E. Lee. The war continues. If he could have come back to life and witnessed the falling of the Lee statue, Abraham Lincoln might not have whooped for joy like Black Lives Matter leader Lawrence West, but given his views on those who fought to break up the Union in defence of slavery, it's safe to assume that he would have quietly approved. Lee, after all, was literally fighting to destroy the last best hope of Earth. And you've been listening to The Last Best Hope from Oxford's RAI. My name's Adam Smith. Goodbye.